This is Neil Hoyne, author of Converted, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection in with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Neil Hoyne to talk about his book, Converted, The Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts, published by Portfolio Penguin. Neil has served as an analyst, researcher, inventor, lecturer, and in his words, the father of many forgettable slides of glossy funnels and Venn diagrams a witness to and participant in billion-dollar successes and instructive failures, all in the pursuit of building indestructible customer relationships through digital media. A key player in the executive rallying cry to be more data-driven. As Google's chief measurement strategist, Neil has had the privilege to lead more than 2,500 engagements with the world's biggest advertisers. His efforts have helped these companies acquire millions of customers, improve conversion rates by more than 400%, and generate billions in incremental revenue. Immensely proud of the degrees he's earned from Purdue University, go Boilermakers, and UCLA, go Bruins, Neil returned to academia in 2018 as a senior fellow at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And Interesting fact, despite the topic of the book, he does not have a quantitative background. Neil, congratulations on Converted, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Hey, thank you so much, and thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, I just, uh, because I, you know, I, really, I really keep track of all the trivia associated with Marketing Book Podcast guests, you are the second Purdue graduate whom I've interviewed. And the other Purdue grad is Jeff Davis, author of Create Togetherness, Transform Sales and Marketing to Exceed Modern Buyers' Expectations and Increase Revenue. It's a terrific book about marketing and sales uh, alignment. And as a matter of fact, since we're going to talk about Purdue for a minute here, he was in school at the same time as Drew Brees, the former New Orleans Saints uh, quarterback. It's, it's a position on an American football team for all the listeners outside the United States. And you know, because you know, I don't, I don't just read the book, Neil Hoyne. I do extensive research. Another famous person who played football at Purdue, the comedian Jim Gaffigan. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Huh. For one year. And then he went, you know, the hard drive space in my head is so filled with really useless trivia that it's, it's amazing I'm able to remember uh, anything else. But you know, there is another famous Purdue alum named Neil, Neil Armstrong, the first man on the moon. So if your name is Neil, do you automatically get into admitted to Purdue now? Yeah, I think you can get admitted to Purdue. I think the engineering program and Neil Armstrong, and I think that they have some ridiculous number of astronauts that have graduated yes. through their engineering program, which is remarkable. It is. That is an entirely different beast altogether. I remember, uh, I just remember my, my roommate freshman year was in their introductory course to engineering, and they, the, the way the orientation goes is look to your left, look to your right. 
all right, uh, only one of you is going to get through this course. <laughs> that's how they weed people out. So they're very accepting to people in. Getting through is an entirely different option. Oh, wow. So I should add that all profits from this book are being donated to local food banks. That's very cool. They are. They are, yeah. We get to fill people's minds and, and people's tummies. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. So now I should add that you work for Google, and there is a disclaimer that's very clear at the beginning of the book. Yes. This book represents the opinion and independent research of the author and is not sponsored or endorsed by Google. However, Neil Hoyne, you work for Google, uh, which means that you can neither confirm nor deny having looked into what my search history is this morning before we got on this uh, interview. So I just want to say that over the years, a lot of really strange people have been breaking into my house and searching for really odd things on Google. Okay, can we just leave it at that? We, we can, we can. And I'll, I'll, even go, I'll even go a step further with it because people say, wait, you work for Google. That means that this is going to be several hundred pages of pro-Google stuff. <laughs> it's, um, it's really not – um, the book really – you don't really don't talk about Google very much unless I, – I, I, I don't. Because in I, fact I – oh, wait. Let me interrupt. I'm sorry. Go there on. is one thing where you mentioned Google and you said, okay, I know this is a Google thing. <laughs> It was a tool they have, I think. Yeah, there's a tool. And I think I mentioned other tools that exist that do it. You know, yes. people come to me and they're like, well, that you're, you're from Google, which means everything I have to do has to be on Google. No, I want practices that are universal. I want right. things that are genuinely best for the business. And I'm kind of old school in our philosophy here, which is to say, look, if, if I'm giving good advice and our products happen to work, then customers will move towards them. Uh, if they're not, then customers will go towards the things that work. So use whatever is best for your business. And, and as for that disclaimer, uh, there was a great conversation with Google early on where I said, well, what's the involvement of the company here? And they were entirely hands-off with the development of the book. Uh, for areas where we do use some Google case studies or we talk about any of the teams, they did want to review that for IP. But nothing in terms of messaging, content, and recommendations. It was just, well, you're not profiting off of it. You're just sharing your advice and your wisdom even before Google Times. And that, I think, is just a better experience for a reader, so they're not wondering to say, well, where's, where's the pitch? Like, what, are, yeah. what are you trying to get me to do? <laughs> I don't think I would have known that you worked at Google as I read the book, except that I'd read uh, your bio beforehand. So, yeah, and there's actually been some other books on the show over the years by, like, the CEO of uh, software companies. And uh, if, if a book comes through and it looks like this is a book on how to use their software, they don't, they don't get on the show anyway. Uh, and But all the others are very upfront saying, no, you do not have to buy our software to understand uh, what, we're, what we're advocating in the book. And it's absolutely true. So I had to laugh when I got your book. Years ago, I was on a panel discussion at, uh, in Washington, D.C., and uh, it was about social media and internet marketing and so forth. And I was talking and explaining something at one point, and it was a great session. Uh, the other folks on it were uh, very helpful, uh, really, really interesting folks. And then afterwards, somebody from the audience came up to me, and this guy, and he said, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate you serving on the panel. It was really interesting what you were talking about, and I was with you um, about everything you had to say until you started talking about religion. And I thought, oh, I wasn't talking about religion. What, 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 uh, you know, what, what are you talking about? He goes, well, when you started talking about conversions— uh, and and converting people, <laughs> I, I had to tune it out after that. So, in case that guy is listening to this interview, this is not a book about religion. Okay, so I hope you don't have the same sort of reaction when uh, you know you, you run into other folks and say, "Oh, you wrote a book about religion." Okay, you know maybe it's at a cocktail party where they meet your wife, and you know they don't they don't work in this line of work, but just just to to, to get you ready. Now, as I was reading the book, uh, another book came to mind, which was. 
the customer centricity book by customer centricity playbook by Peter Fader. And only at the end of the book did you re- you indicate that you know him through your affiliation with the Wharton School. And I just thought, gosh, Douglas, you are so bad at picking up hints. You know, <laughs> in fact, we oh, talked. It's not. It's not. Yeah, not not picking up hints. I think a lot of this is connecting dots, which is to yeah. say, there's a lot of great research and a lot of great ideas that work independently, but you just kind of sit there and you scratch your head and you say, well, how, how does this apply to my business? How can I use this? And, and Pete's book is one of those, Pete actually has two books. He has, uh, you know, customer centricity and then the customer centricity playbook, uh-huh. both books that I would highly recommend. And, and they're great foundational materials. And the idea of this was to go a step further, not only to make it more accessible, but also a little bit broader to say, well, how do you take a lot of these principles about building customer relationships and make them accessible so someone can take it and say, yes, I, I can do this for myself. Yes, absolutely. And I'm going to include a link to his Marketing Book Podcast interview in your episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, as well as the Jeff Davis interview, uh, your fellow uh, Purdue grad. But at the very end, the acknowledgments, you write, my contributions in this field of marketing would be empty if not for the research and mentorship of Peter Fader. Few can match his contributions to the field of customer analytics, and none can come close to the generosity he offers to those who are pursuing the same. And I have included uh, his book in presentations that I've given, and we're going to talk about quite a bit about that. And, And actually, Peter Fader was one of the people who endorsed your book. He wrote, it's a wonderful guidebook on building profitable customer relationships. Whether you're just getting started or consider yourself an experienced practitioner, this book is invaluable. And then Martin Lindstrom, who's been on the show twice, uh, and I'll read this, but I can't do it in his unique Danish accent. I've been waiting 20 years for this book. Converted explores how to use data the right way to win customers' hearts. This book is simply a must read. And then Jay Baer, who's like, He's like mentioned in almost every episode. He's been on several times. He writes, uh, the most useful field guide ever written on how to drive desirable customer behavior online. Now, Neil, you write with great clarity, and I really appreciate that. And Because this could be a topic that could be very intimidating, and your sense of humor really comes through in the book. (laughs) I just, I I had, there were so many times off to the, in the column, I wrote, ha, which means maybe we're not going to talk about it, but it, it's something that just tickled my fancy. And I just have to mention one of them. It was in the introduction. You wrote, I've worked with executives who demanded absolute accountability for every dollar spent until it came to buying the naming rights to a college football game. When their sales numbers showed they would have produced better returns had they wrapped their product in $100 bills and tossed them into the crowd, they questioned the data. When I got a, an advanced copy of the book, I read that. I said, that's it. I got to get this guy. <laughs> he belongs on this podcast. So, and you're going to get to do most of the talking. I know I realize I'm doing all of it right now, but let me just um, read from a couple of excerpts. This is from the introduction, which is uh, page 17, or for those people in Rome, it's page XVII. A digital marketer walks into a bar and asks the first person they see to marry them. Crazy, right? But that's what companies do. That's digital marketing. (laughs) If the marketing team asks enough strangers the question, maybe it's a hundred, maybe a thousand. Eventually, someone will say yes. The marketers give themselves one moment, one opportunity to drive a result, and they treat every interaction the same. They can change only so much what they wear, which bar they walk into, maybe a word or two, and what they say. And then the CEO asks, why aren't more people saying yes? 
because others are playing a different game. They say, hello. They start a conversation. They ask questions, actually listen to the answers and let things develop. They begin to build a relationship one step at a time, and then they ask themselves, is this going anywhere? Their data tells them the answer, and they act on it. And then uh, a page earlier, you write, uh, instead of optimizing to the immediate, what if you built a business around long-term relationships with customers using data to understand who the best customers were and what products they wanted to buy, then building around them? What if you could leave your competitors with all of their data and their short-term thinking just to poke around in the scraps? The answer, you can, and it works incomprehensibly well. The marketing success stories over the next decade will be more than just clicks and conversions. They will be about people and conversations with customers that build into relationships. And then you go on to write, this book is a field guide to this new terrain, an exploration loosely organized around three themes, conversations, relationships, and self-improvement. It's not meant to be read once, then left to sit on your shelf. I hope you'll turn to it often, share it with colleagues excited by what you're learning. I want you to wear it out and then buy another copy, but that's just me. It is a guide filled with practical advice, but you won't find yourself lost in the swamps of technical details. Along the way, you'll see signposts to a website with additional content that supports the lessons in the book, a community of practitioners to engage with on your journey, and a developing set of tools designed to do much of the heavy lifting for you. And finally, on page four, you write, the fact is digital marketers, myself included, are better at making statements than conversation. It's not hard to picture us at a bar approaching strangers with the strongest possible 30-second call to action and an almost painful sense of urgency. You should marry me right now. Only one of me left. God help you if you reply. We might even follow you around to other bars for the next two weeks, you know, just in case. <laughs> so, Neil, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And I've got to um, ask you, let's just start out on... Uh, the, the chapter on, on starting simple. And uh, you write about how you went to lunch uh, with some um, retail marketing executives and they were you know, talking to you about what they were up to and uh, they kind of wanted to get your feedback. And you write, they said, we're excited about the opportunity here. Uh, we're going to digitally transform our business. <laughs> and then you go on to write, usually this is where I get concerned. Digital transformation is quickly earning its place in the upper echelons of bullshit business speak, right next to innovation, acceleration, and amplification. So, Neil Hoyne, please tell us yes, why sir. did you start a chapter on the importance of simplicity with that uh, funny take on some of these very popular business buzzwords? You know, it, it, it it's simple uh, in itself that marketers, uh, businesses tend to overcomplicate what they're pursuing and their strategy because it sounds like the right answer. Uh, when you listen to some of these earnings calls you sit down with, as I was sitting down with these executives over lunch, they think, well, what is a strategy forward? And they hear, well, every company is doing digital transformation. Therefore, we need to do digital transformation. <laughs> right. Or every company is using machine learning or artificial intelligence or they're, they're minting NFTs nowadays or Web3. <laughs> What's our strategy? We're going to get left behind. And so what they do is they work backwards. They say, we're going to digitally transform. And then they sit down and they start thinking, well, what does that mean? And that's a much harder question to solve because now what they have is a solution in search of a problem. Mm -hmm. They're saying, well, we should digitally transform. What does that involve? And unfortunately, the consequence, which is what happened in this case, is they look to somebody on the outside 
to say, we need to find a consultant, a software vendor, people to tell us how do we digitally transform? And of course, there's people waiting that are willing to take your money and sell you software. And then afterwards, you kind of look and you scratch your head. You say, well, we've been at this digital transformation for two years. Do we feel any different? Well, no. Okay. Did, did we do anything? And the only thing you have to show for it is to say, well, you spent a lot of money and time should be better off because of it. And that's exactly what happened in the case of this particular company. Uh, as we reveal later on that this particular company spent the money and the time and what they thought was a reasonable approach, right? You hire smart people, you get software, but the objective was always unclear. Mm. And that's, that's the issue that I take it. When you go back, like when I started my career and people talked about digital transformation, it was very simple. Here's something we did with pen and paper. You know, like it was one case, if we need a new order, we, we write it down and we fax it to somebody and then they have to write it down again. And then after six or seven pieces of paper, somebody ships out our product and a digital transformation was simple. Let's get away from pen and paper and let's use a computer. It can check inventory. It can check for errors in the orders. Everything is easier and cheaper. That was a digital transformation. You had a specific process that you made better and you made a lot more money and you saved a lot more money. Now, if you're pursuing it along those routes where you know what you're trying to do next, that, that's great. Those are the things I look forward to. When people come and say, we're just going to do a thousand things, but we don't know what they are yet. I say, well, that's really what you need to sort out first. And so that's why I take a little bit of a hard line whenever companies come in and say, we're chasing down one of these strategies because I really want them to take a step back and to say why. Yes. Well, marketers, I guess like anybody, uh, but particularly marketers, exceeded perhaps only by attorneys, uh, they, they tend to overcomplicate things. Uh, and they, they often speak in another language that's, that's problematic. But it was so refreshing to see in the book about you know, somebody from Google, no less, saying, look, you got to be, try to be a little more simple. Try to make it uh, a little less complicated. And there was a, there were two great Two great things for marketers to keep in mind, where you say a marketer who can focus on what's necessary to move a business forward today is 10 times more valuable than one who gushes about the latest opportunity to connect everything in life to the internet. Does that sound like digital uh, transformation to you? And then on the same page, you write, some of the most successful marketers I know spend no more than a couple hours setting up a database in the cloud and work from there. It'll be sloppy and it might not scale well. But it's enough to get moving. Start with a workshop, not a factory. <laughs> we don't need a huge CRM when a spreadsheet will do. It's, it's terrific and very refreshing. And sometimes we forget about how uh, much we can overcomplicate things. And, uh, you know, of course, we're also seduced by the shiny uh, objects of, of all the, the marketing software. So you have a chapter about asking the right questions. And when you... You talk about asking questions. Everyone immediately says, oh, oh, we're going to send out uh, an, an email survey. <laughs> yep. And, and, well, you, and you say, well, uh, that it could be part of it, but that's a, a small part of it. And you even have a great quote from uh, John Le Carre. A desk is a dangerous place from which to watch the world. That has got to be – I don't think he meant for that to be a marketing quote, but that is so – relevant and so in touch with so many other books about how you've got to get out of the office and go talk to your customers. But I want to quote from something at the very end of the book and ask you to explain. It's on page uh, 203 of this copy. Explain what you mean when you say it's better to help others find their own questions than it is to just hand them answers. 
So with, within the context, here's, here's what we're talking about. If, if the first chapter of the book is really talking about starting simple, it's giving you permission to let go of all that weight, to say you don't need to know every single detail, every single intricacy of, of a customer. What that quote leans towards and what this chapter leans towards is having the curiosity to figure out what truly matters for your customers and to have permission to go explore that. Now, if you look at most surveys, if you look at most online order forms, you can probably think in your head the questions that they ask you. They're all the same, right? What's your name? Okay, your address. Maybe they'll, they'll send you out a net promoter score survey. How likely are you to recommend our business to oh. your friend? And they're not, they don't even hide it. I get emails where it's just kind of like, we'd love your feedback. And the bottom is like, net promoter score. It's like, oh, well, if I put a 10, you're going you're gonna to love me. You're going to think I'm your biggest advocate. <laughs> what I'm going towards is to say, let some of that go. And think about it more in the real world context. If somebody comes into your physical store and you're talking to them, how awkward would it be if you sit there and be like, so how, how likely are you to recommend us to a friend? Or how awkward would it be if you subject them and say, hey, thank you for buying this purchase. If you have a moment, can you sit down so I can ask you 75 questions about your life and your spending habits? Yeah, or it'd be you like, back to it. that bar, which of course really spoke to me. Let's say you're breaking up with somebody in a bar <laughs> and you say, how likely would you be to recommend me to your girlfriends? <laughs> oh yeah, you, you can't do it. You can't do it. And you know what's strange though, is that people... People ask those equivalent questions online, and then they're disappointed <laughs> with the results. Yeah. And they say, ah, online surveys don't work. And so really what this next chapter is about is to say that some of the greatest signals, the greatest questions, the greatest pieces of data you need, not only are they incredibly simple, where one or two things could direct your entire fortunes as a business, but to also say you need to have the curiosity to say, what do you truly want to know about your customers, not what fills in your dashboard, mm -hmm. not what allows you to trend your net promoter score, but what don't you know? And oftentimes when I pose this question, whether it's to small businesses, to entrepreneurs, or even large company CMOs, they stop and they say, well, there's, there's so much I don't know about my customers. Mm. Okay, well, why didn't you ask? Well, what opportunity do I have? And then you start seeing the process, you realize that most companies, even on their checkout forms, where they have the opportunity to ask, they haven't used it. They've had the same form, the same data mm -hmm. year after year. And all they do is that almost Hail Mary of an approach to say, let's just try to send out this survey. And only some people, we're going to get a handful of people to answer it. And that's going to drive our strategy. It's to say the very first thing you need to do is to start asking those questions and say, what do you really need to know? What do you really need to learn? And what are the signals that you should be paying attention to? Yeah. And there's also at the end of that chapter, you, you write that, I know this sounds really simple, but I don't see it done all the time, and I'm probably guilty of it of, of all of these things. But you say before you ask a question, ask yourself how you'll respond based on the answer. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, somebody wants to add something to let's say to a survey. You say, okay, what are we going to do with that information? It, again, it's a question that helps lead to a better question. Yeah, it, it, it's great. It's great to ask stuff, but it's it you know it's as in the book. It's kind of like to ask them. It was like, do you like skiing? Are we going skiing? No. So why did you ask that question? And, and you think that that's fundamental that marketers should not do it. But again, this is this is the the, the larger thesis that runs through this book is that. Look, data is a language. Data helps us understand what we can't directly see. We can't see somebody coming to our website. Data is what lives in the middle that we then try to interpret. What we're all guilty of is letting that data define who those people are. So we're, we don't see those people anymore. We don't see those relationships. 
We just see that data. And when that happens, when companies fall into that trap, then they define their questions, their context, their understanding purely by metrics. Mm -hmm. They stop seeing people as people Mm -hmm. and they start seeing people as hits or unique visitors or conversions, not people with titles, with jobs, with relationships that they need to develop and understand. And when you think about that human component, when you say, say you could meet a customer and ask them what they think about your business, the questions they ask are often more human and more insightful, more powerful for growth Mm -hmm. than say you want to tweak your dashboard. What insight or metric do you need to bring into it? That's a completely different story and arguably less helpful. Yes. And speaking of humans... There's a chapter, chapter four. I wanted to read this from, uh, again, this is my advanced copy, which is page 35, about embracing human nature. You write, one thing that data-driven companies try to do is insist that human beings are perfectly rational. They make decisions purely based on price and value and features. I, I could, in fact, I could hear a, maybe an engineer from Purdue saying that. They want the fastest website and the quickest shipping times. The data explains everything. But we've actually found a lot of opportunity in looking beyond the data to recognize the reality of human behavior. (laughs) Neil, what is the reality of human behavior? The reality of of human behavior is simply that people are going to do what they're going to do, and you shouldn't obsess about trying to streamline or reduce that. So you're saying people are irrational? Yeah, of course they're irrational. Um, (laughs) I don't think a lot of people uh, acknowledge that. Yeah, why? This is I I joke around people with AirPods. I was like, Apple Apple had headphones that were fifteen dollars, and our biggest complaint was that they had cords. And now we replaced it with something we have to charge is incredibly fragile and costs ten times as much. (laughs) Why would I do it? It's like, well, because I want it. Give it to me. Like we accept, we accept that. What the reason why I bring that up is it's tying to those comments I mentioned before. If you look at people as human. They're going to do things that don't make sense for you. And I worry sometimes that what companies do is they try to make sense of every interaction and every click. They try to measure everything and to say, if we can't do it, if our data can't be perfect, we won't be able to understand anything. And again, here, that larger permission to say, if you accept that when you look at buyer behavior, that it's going to be strange. Why do people come back to my website so often? Why do people click on this versus that? Why do some people buy more when my price is higher? What it allows you to do is to figure out how to respond to that type of behavior mm-hmm. instead of just pretending that it doesn't exist. Right. Instead of just presenting the data, you, you want, to, want to ask why. Exactly. Exactly. And you want to start saying, well, uh, instead of let's optimize it so people can't do this strange, irrational thing, it's to say, no, people are going to do these irrational things. And the best <laughs> thing you can do as a business owner, as a marketer, as a salesperson, is just to accept they're going to do it. And just prepare yourself accordingly for it. Just to say, look, we know people are going to buy in this behavior. We know we like to provide people, in simple terms, a lot of products. But we know that a lot of products overwhelm people. So we want to give fewer products. But if we ask them how many products, they're going to say, give me everything. Those seem to be conflicting. So you want all the products, but you won't make a decision unless I give you a fewer amount of products. And you can optimize to that if you simply accept that people are going to do that. And oftentimes we try to just solve problems that are unsolvable. Yes. And I, I mentioned it in the book, my wife does come up a few times. I dropped a few <laughs> references because she's like, don't bring up that story. But in some of those cases where it's like, look, one of the things that I just accept, and this is what leads to a happy marriage, is we're not, I'm not always going to understand what you're going towards or what you want me to do. I'm a man that's, that's organized towards action. You give me a problem, I will solve it. 
And sometimes you just need to listen about what's going on. You get a deeper understanding and appreciation for the problem. And this is the same thing that businesses have. Sometimes businesses are so dedicated to say, we want to push everybody through the funnel. Get out of my way. Get to the shopping cart. And we're saying, no, you really need to take a step back at times and listen, because sometimes these things will not be as rational as you hope they would be. Mm -hmm. I think it was uh, Damasio who was quoted as saying that we are feeling animals that occasionally think. We're not thinking animals that occasionally have feelings. And uh, that always works. You know, or you may have heard uh, people say, you know, the animal brain always wins. Uh, it's basically we're very – people are much more driven by emotions. And as a matter of fact, since we're talking about engineers, I had another book on the show, a couple of them actually, where they talk about how this one fellow was talking to a group of engineers. And they were saying exactly what you had in that quote there about, no, it's all rational. That's all the customer wants. They want a faster this and that. And he said, okay, uh, who, who here is married and all these – it was largely guys. They raised their hand. They said, okay, so when you put all of your uh, marriage candidates into a spreadsheet with various uh, categories across the top in different columns, what were the different um, you know, categories that you evaluated to lead you to the decision that you made? Oh, boy. And Well, it worked. They all, they all laughed and said, all right, all right, I guess you're right. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> just a little uh, tip for everybody out there. So, But kind of related to that, in the Another chapter on taking a hint, because I mentioned taking a hint when we were uh, chatting earlier. You, I wanted to ask you to tell a little bit more about this uh, story about the car makers. You were talking to some car makers, and we're not going to say which, because um, I'm sure you work with a lot of different car companies. And you, you mentioned that some companies have a harder time reading hints than others. Mm-hmm. And you wrote that this uh, car maker's challenge was born from a well-intentioned pursuit of building a, building a customer funnel. It's the marketing equivalent of saying, this is how I want a date to go. I'm going to pick her up and take her to a restaurant. And then I'm going to compliment her on her outfit. And then I'm going to pay for dinner. And she's going to think I'm a better person. And then we're going to go out again. Maybe next time we'll kiss. Is that how it actually goes? Not really. Human interactions aren't always linear. I I wish the the process of building these funnels was as fun and as lighthearted. (laughs) Oftentimes, they're serious. People sit down. Well, we need to know exactly the steps people are going to go through. And and sometimes they'll do little exit points where they're going to leave, but they're going to come back. But they want the script and they want the idea. And again, there's nothing wrong with going through any of these exercises if it helps to clarify your thoughts, if it helps to give you a better understanding of your business. Where it becomes dangerous is where it starts driving your business. Where you say, no, after step two has to come step three. That's what we designed. That's what we built. And when people peel off, you blame it on them. Oh, well, they, they didn't like my compliment. So they, they weren't the right person for me. Or, or they, they didn't want to go out to the movies. So that's their fault. Yeah. Or even worse, you blame me. would be like, they didn't want to go out to the movies. I'm going to blame the friend that introduced us. The ad network that brought this person here. They found the wrong person. And and with that particular story to the listeners, here's here's what here's what happened was that they assumed that everyone goes through the funnel and what you naturally want to do, what they built it for, was that you want to customize your car. You want to build your dream vehicle. And this is very similar in their mind to what retailers have with a shopping cart. You find a product you love, you put it in that cart, we know you're serious and we're going to pursue you. And what they ended up finding was that that wasn't necessarily the case. That some people already knew what car they had in mind. It didn't make sense to go through and build a car. Some people were limited to the dealership inventory, what they had on hand. Other people just didn't care about what it cost. Mm -hmm. 
Now, that insight alone would have been great, but what was throwing off their business was that they were looking at it to say, whoever built the best, the most expensive cars, these are going to be our best customers. Look how much they want to spend. Our average car may sell for $50,000. they are customizing a car that's $110,000. And what they would do is they would lock onto these people and then say, wow, these are all buying words. I want this person. Marketing ad after marketing ad, sales collateral, phone call, whatever you needed. Here comes the red carpet. We're going to take care of you. And in the end, they found that most of the time, it was just adolescent boys who were building their dream car. <laughs> who could never people, afford. People who could never afford it and say, I'm going to go here and this is what, oh, look at all these features and, and I want to print this out and then they're going to send me materials and posters. I'm like, this is great. And it was an aspirational vehicle. And what happened was because of how valuable these people were perceived to be, their marketing efforts were heavily favored towards targeting people that never had the intention to buy. Yes. Uh. And it just came, that, that, was, that was their lesson. Uh, but, but they had to learn that. But the way they built it, the way they crafted it was, we're going to build a shopping cart. And whoever fills up their shopping cart with the most stuff, they're going to be the most valuable. They're raising their hand and saying, oh, they want to spend with us. And so we need, to, we need to lean into these people. And they never stopped to say, is this truly happening the way that we intended? Right. Are there any hints that we might be ignoring here? Um, yeah. So it was it was a great story. Now let's get into the real what I think is one of the the real meat of the book. Uh, you know, really one of the linchpins. Um, I want to read uh, from page uh, eighty three. Uh, you write whether companies explicitly recognize it or measure it, they are already in relationships with their customers. It's just a question of strength and value of knowing how important you are to your various customers. So let's talk about uh, customer lifetime value. And you write that it's quickly becoming the indispensable measure for marketers trying to understand if they are creating sustainable value for their business or merely positioning themselves between transactions. So I don't know if we can get into all the the specific details and you have, it's real specific. So marketers are going to love this with all the examples of charts and so forth. But talk about obviously the importance of customer lifetime value and some of the things that companies can do to start to try and figure out what it is. Let's look at this from, I like to look at it from the relationship metaphor side. If, if I'm in a relationship with someone, I want to have a sense as to where they fall in my life. You know, you kind of know friends and family, they're going to be close, uh, indispensable partners in your life. And you know that, you recognize that, you spend a lot of time with them, you really get to know them, you do a lot of things together. You know the Uber driver isn't in the same class. It's a transactional. Uber driver, they pick you up from the airport, they drop you off at home. Businesses often struggle to identify who is in what category. And it's surprising. What they'll look at is they'll look at, well, what did you do today? Or how much did you spend this month? And that is that ties to that original story, that going into a bar and immediately asking someone to marry you, it's, well, okay, so you, you said yes today, but did you say yes tomorrow? And, and that wheel is what we're trying to break. Now, what, what does customer lifetime value mean? It means that at an individual customer level, you're going to know how much those customers are worth. Some customers are going to spend a lot with you. They're going to be incredibly valuable. They're going to be the equivalent of those friends and, and, and family members that you love to see. And other people are going to be one or two time transactions that you're never going to see again. And there's nothing wrong with that. People just fall into those categories. But what business owners are finding is they need to know who's who. Mm -hmm. Because if you're selling products or if you're, if you're asking somebody for your opinion, uh, for their opinion on something, say, do you like this creative or do you like this product we're thinking about? 
if you have one customer who you know you're going to be receiving a lot of money from, and one customer that no matter how hard you try, they're never going to buy again, who are you going to listen to? And who are you going to pay attention to? So you see these parallels. The same thing is when you go to ask for counsel or advice from people in your life, you trust some people and you don't trust others. And that's what lifetime value helps to quantify is it allows you to see through that data to say, these people are worth paying a lot of attention to. And these people, we're still going to leave them around. They still are helpful and they'll still transact with us, but they're not going to be as close no matter how hard we try as the people that really are. Yes. And it seems like a lot of companies are spending a lot of money trying to get customers that are just not profitable. If they can start to zero in on the ones that are the most profitable for them, that's better. I mean, I can remember talking to a CFO once about this concept, and he, he found it very helpful, but he wasn't familiar with the idea. I said, how long do you keep your customers? And, and what are, it was a, uh, uh, an industrial company. And I said, and what do they tend to spend every year? <laughs> Next thing he knew, he was like, oh, Wow. Um, and it was a slightly different conversation, but over the course of the uh, of the relationship, and what do they have in common, and 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 who are these folks? And the another interesting concept was when you talk about how there are some customers where you can actually determine, you know, we've pretty much got all the value out of this relationship, and we're not going to fire the customer necessarily, or maybe they can, but you realize. It's it's okay if they go away, or you know yeah. we don't want to spend so much resources trying to get more people like that or uh, supporting them. The the relationship has run its course. Yeah, that, that's what it is. It's it's answering that question. I think one of the hardest questions that companies have to answer is who are your customers, and when you think about that, you're like, well, I, I see answers that are well. Here's all the people in my CRM system. Here's uh-huh. all the email addresses I have. Here's all the people that boss bought last month. I said, no, those, those are all transactions. How many people are coming back? How many people are you actually having these relationships with that you can expect? And you realize that it's arbitrary rules. They said, oh, well, if you didn't purchase from me in the past 12 months, then you're no longer a customer. Well, okay, well, what if my cycle is I just buy from you every two to three years? Does that mean you don't, you don't care about me if I come back all the time? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, if, what if I bought on a coupon code because you had a really great discount and am I going to come back? That's the question we're trying to answer. And I think, you know, lifetime value is a very, it sounds almost like a technical term, but it's just such an important metric because you can go through those customers. You can go through that. And it, by the way, it comes out like a spreadsheet. So that's really what you're looking at. You're looking at a spreadsheet to say, yeah. hey, here's Neil. How much do, do we expect Neil to spend versus other people? And it just allows you to prioritize and to focus, and you can watch how that relationship grows and you can calibrate your business accordingly. Yes. And you can also, better calibrate your sales and marketing activities. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that's yeah, why why spend money targeting somebody that's not going to return your call. That's not going to buy or will only buy if you offer them the deep discount. By the way, I'm convinced that it only comes with this universal optimism that seems to just, you know, just surge through marketers that are like, we can win anybody over. Yes. Maybe, but at what cost? And, and out of how much time? And you talk in the book about how there's this, again, eternal optimism of, well, they're not a good profitable customer now, but we think we can change them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we can, we, when they see how great we are. <laughs> right. I, grew up, uh, I grew up in Chicago during the daily deal boom. Groupon uh, was founded and is still based in Chicago. And where all these companies are surging and saying to businesses, look, offer these $5 discounts and you'll have lines out the door and then these people will come back and pay full price later. And if you did the lifetime value on them, you realize they weren't. 
you realize they were there because you offered them a cheap price and a promotion. They will come back if you're willing to lose even more money (laughs) because who doesn't appreciate a good deal? Yeah. I'm not going to pay $10 for your sandwich, but I'll pay two. And, and that, that sense of optimism that all they have to do is see how great of a person I am is, is what leads a lot of businesses down to this path where they scratch their head later on. They say, Oh my, my marketing as a whole, isn't that effective? It's, well, because this optimism is saying you should be spending money on people that aren't going to return that love. Yeah, like uh, building a customizable portal of their website uh, that to, for teenage boys to use who can't buy your really cool car. Not going to buy your car. No. Not going to buy your car. So let's move on to another, what I thought was just a very key concept. It was really uh, very illustrative and uh, about the about the relationship, looking you know playing the long game, and I want to read one part, and I'm going to ask you uh, who we're talking about, and, and and a couple other questions. You write on uh, this is page 95, chapter nine, meet better people. Once upon a time, there was a hedge fund analyst who wanted to start an internet company that focused on the quality of his customers. He knew that some people were going to be more valuable to his business over time than others. The question was how to find them, how to bring them into his company, and how to build a great relationship so they'd keep coming back and keep buying. And he found a signal, something that high net worth, high disposable income individuals in the United States tend to buy more often than people on the opposite end of the spectrum. So, Neil Hoyne, what was that thing that this analyst realized they were buying a lot of and and who were they and go from there well the, the analyst was jeff bezos the company obviously was amazon and the signal was books you know, high net worth individuals people with high amounts of disposable income in the u.s bought disproportionately more books in that category than people that uh than, than low that was a big hint to him <laughs> that was that was a big hint and from the outside from people that are largely transactional they would say God, this is a strange space to go into, right? Books are books can be a commodity. There's already established players in the market. Sure, the internet gives you some efficiency advantages, but what makes you different apart from building an online store? Those were people that looked in terms of transactions. They were saying, God, I'm gonna just sell, how many books can you possibly sell in a day? But Amazon's approach almost since day one has been, no, we, what we really want to do is understand the customers. If we build that relationship, we build that trust, and you can look at it from anything from you know prime delivery times to the customer service that they have, then you're willing to go there, and even right now, you're willing to pay more for some products than to go to other retailers and companies where you don't have that relationship. And that was why they focused on those signals. Short term, they didn't make any sense. That's why no one was pursuing it in that manner. Mm-hmm. But their idea was simply to say, what we want to do is build our customer base around the people who are going to have the most money, who are going to spend the most. Because if we have those, you get a few advantages. Well, first of all, you can do more to service those customers because they're paying more money. And then you can become the envy of other companies. Say, How can they provide that shipping time and that customer service? Well, it's because those customers are buying more. And even just as importantly, because we need to think of the opposite side of the problem, they're depriving other companies of those same customers. Mm -hmm. So when other companies are looking and saying, look at all the customers I have, they start saying, well, why aren't my customers as great as Amazon's customers? Well, it's because Amazon spent the time to say, look, what we're going to do is we're going to come in and just, we're going to take the best people out of your segment and we're going to, we're going to treat them well. We're going to understand them. We're going to hold on to them. And you know what? You can have everybody else in the market that isn't going to spend as much. That's going to be harder to service. 
Those are the people you can have. And then you look at the two businesses and you're like, well, this is why one is immensely more profitable than the other. And just to sum that up, there's a great quote on page 97 about Amazon where you, you write, this was the late 90s and still today. Amazon remains ahead of its competitors. It is fundamentally better at understanding its customers than anybody else is. It listens. It asks questions. Then it puts what it learns to use. If you look at the average lifetime value of an Amazon Prime customer, it's almost 30 times greater than that of an average retailer's customer. And then I want to I cap that off with just one other quote from page 140 where you write, Marketing used to be entirely about clicks. Get someone to click plus get someone to buy equals success, then move on. That's not so much wrong as outdated. The best companies today are playing a longer game. They're focused on their most valuable customers, and they're bringing that focus to their products, their marketing, and their service. They're becoming better at grabbing the high-value customers and convincing them to stay. Those who don't move in this direction will be left behind. So... Let's go on to um, some more information for a marketer. This is from page 98, where you write, as a marketer, there are three ways to build your business. You can meet new people, which is uh, acquisition. You can improve the relationships you have, development. Or you can work to save relationships that may be on the way out, which is retention. Let's be clear. Most of your efforts should go toward acquisition. Finding great relationships, like the customers we've learned to identify, is much easier than trying to change someone into a better person. So let's talk a little bit more about finding great customers. You talk about how you know where customers are acquired from is one of the most important characteristics to look at. But then you go on to write that marketers who are studying individual interactions tend to look at only uh, where did people come from and how much did they spend today? So what is it that's that's still missing to that equation? I mean, those are good things to look at, but what adds uh, a lot more insight? I, I use I, This is where the lifetime value part comes in. But again, I, I always defer back to those individual relationships. It's to say, you could have a great introduction, a great first date. And then when you look back on that relationship, how did that relationship turn out? And if there wasn't necessarily a connection between a great first date and a lasting, you know, rewarding relationship, then is that first date really a great signal? Mm -hmm. And a lot of companies, they focus on transactions because they have that data. They know what immediately happened. That's easy. Somebody came to me today. I got to know them. They spent a lot of money. This is great. I want more of those people. But then what happened next? And that's all lifetime values changes. It's changing from that individual conversation, that one-time moment, to saying, hey, instead of doing that, let's, let's just consider a collection of moments. Let's see how things play out over the next couple months, a couple years. Did you find the right people? And so we're just changing the timeline. We're saying we're going to give you a little bit more space. Now, now you mentioned that, that formula and the, 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 the clicks and then plus conversions of transactions equals success. This is nobody's fault. This is what what we wanted to do in marketing. We want accountability. Well, you still want that information. Yeah, you you certainly want it. But we went a little bit, in my opinion, too hard on it, which was to say, you know, going back 15 years ago, that's what was so great about online advertising. Somebody clicked and you could see and say, I spent five cents on this person and they bought. And this was great because when you compare it to TV, I ran a TV ad. How many sales did we get from it? Well, how many people called? How many people went to stores? That was impossible to track. Uh-huh. But now, now we're able to do it. And all I'm, all I'm encouraging people to do is say, yes, that worked for a time. But now that you see companies starting to move past that, 
and saying companies are saying, look, that that's great, but every day I can't go into the office and say, God, how many people can I get to click and to buy? You're looking for something more sustainable that will drive your business forward mm-hmm. so that you don't have to worry about this. And that's really all that we're advocating for in the, these types of approaches. Yeah. So I want to go on to, of course, I'm a, I'm a sucker for jokes. Okay. So you have, <laughs> you have this great joke on page 111. <laughs> Maybe it, maybe some people will cry when they hear it. And I'd like you to explain you know, via the story you tell sure. what they were doing, but I'm going to read the joke. The story behind it was very interesting about this unicorn. Okay, here's the joke. Ready? A million guys walk into a Silicon Valley bar. No one buys anything. Bar declares massive success. <laughs> what happened there? You, you talk about this unicorn and you don't identify who they are, but it's a, it was such a great story as to basically what you're talking about in this book. It it, it ties to the idea. uh, And this this is just one of the things that I find consistently is disproven, but often too late to Mm. change it. Yeah. Is that sometimes companies mistake it to say the attention, the audience, the people, there is the value. It's almost, and this is why I I poke fun and you'll see this throughout the book. I do poke fun a little bit at times at influencers to say, I have so many people following me. I have, it's the same thing in business. I have so many email addresses. I have so many customers in my CRM database. I am bound to be successful if I can simply figure out a way to monetize them. Mm-hmm. Like that's the easy problem. Like the hard part is getting everyone's email or getting someone to follow me online. No, the, the hard part is figuring out how to monetize them. And so what I, I take a, a strong position on here is to say, you really want the great customers first. Now, in the case of the unicorn that you asked about, what happened? They made that mistake where what they said was effectively that acquiring any customer was the hard part. That once they did that, once they're able to acquire customers, that they would go on and they would spend any customer would be successful. So early on, when they had their early adopters, uh, the friends and family, their good friends, the people that they built their, their company around, those people came in and when they looked at how they performed, they said, wow, these people are spending lots of money. This is fantastic. And they made an assumption to say, every other customer that we acquire will spend the same way, (laughs) or we can convince them to spend the same way, because as soon as they see how great we are, they'll be just like our friends and family. They just need to get to know us. And they never thought about that assumption as their business continued to operate. And they they continued with the same assumption on a customer acquisition cost, like it costs $550 to get each customer. And it's actually, Mm -hmm. no, (laughs) they're not monolithic. That, that's, that's what it was. They looked at it and they said, look, with, with how much each customer is going to spend, and some businesses do make this mistake, where they say each customer could be worth $10,000. Once they get to know us and our service and our shipping, they'll be worth that. No, really what we see is customers have an inherent value when they're acquired. And you're not going to be able to create more value out of them from your current products. Now, in that case, they had the assumption to say they could and by the time they realized it, what effectively found out was that what they thought customers that would be worth 10 times more than they actually were. And yeah. that came around because then what they, they missed, and this is kind of their mistake, was that they spent so much on these customers with the anticipation that they would be worth so much that when the reality came through to say they couldn't change their behavior, then they said, wow, so every customer we acquired, we took a loss. <laughs> right. And that was the truth. You grew your CRM database and those customers are worth. I'll tell you the most the most common example for retailers today where this happens is the cor- the coupon code mistake, 
which is they come out and they say, look, new customer acquisition is important. And they'll usually throw out a number. They'll say, every customer we acquire over the next 12 months spends $500 with us. And so like acquisition is key. As many customers as we can get because everyone is going to be worth $500. And then what they'll do is they'll be like, well, how do we, how do we juice customer acquisition? This is kind of hard. Um, I know. We'll put a coupon code on the homepage. So anybody that comes 10 to 15% off, register as a customer, right? And so they do the background. Okay, great. We received 100 new people signed up today. And eventually they're going to spend $500 a piece. Not really. In reality, I have 15 accounts with them because every time I come to your site, if you're willing to give me 10 to 15% off, I'm willing to take it. Sure. Yeah. And so for those 15 customers, even if I end up as an individual being worth $500, it's going to be spread across those 15 accounts or a yeah. 16th next time I want that coupon code. And, and that's just a mistake that they make, the optimism that they can change how much these customers are going to be worth. I misspoke when I said 550. You're right. The company was using an average value of $550. So they, they average, they said each customer's worth that. He said in its strategy and its pitch deck, all customers were worth that amount, regardless of who they were or how they were acquired. But in practice, a small fraction were worth significantly more, and the vast majority worth much, much, much less. less. You know that now they didn't then. That $200 customer acquisition cost was far more than many of their customers were worth. So I hope I've uh, frightened folks uh, <laughs> with that story. I've just got to mention, there's like two other questions I want to ask you about the book, but there's one thing that really blew me away. And that was uh, on page 158, you quoted a corporate executive board, which I guess is now part of Gartner, MREB, Customer Focus Survey from 2011. And you wrote, we know that only 6% of marketing decisions are based on data. About 50% are made based on personal experience, judgment, and intuition. A figure, interestingly enough, that doesn't vary whether you ask senior decision makers or junior decision makers. About 10% are made because of what the boss says, and another 10% because of what colleagues say. That's terrifying. I, I, maybe I should have mentioned that at the beginning of the interview, but that just blew me away, and it reminded me of the naming rights for the stadium. I can remember years ago when I was a New York ad man, we had this uh, insurance company, a uh, big financial services company, and they had a variety of insurance companies, and there was one insurance company, Life Insurance, and they wanted to sponsor a NASCAR car, a, a race car. And the corporate the headquarters guys were like, go talk to him, but this is not a good idea. We're in the life insurance business. <laughs> but they they had done no nothing of anything else, but they wanted to they wanted to see their name on the the race car driver's uh, outfit. Yeah. And I remember at the meeting I said I, I I was curious and I said, what happens if if your driver dies in the race? Is are you guys going to insure his life? And of course they thought that was a really cool idea. I wasn't trying to spitball cool ideas. Oh, no. I was trying to help them understand <laughs> that. And then the very just a few weeks later, there was the Daytona 500, and um, oh no, yeah, there was something terrible happened, and there was even a one car the hood flew off and uh, into the audience and 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 hit and hurt people. Anyway, but it was the same sort of thing where it was. My point, Neil Hoyne, is there wasn't a, there wasn't a whole lot of data <laughs> behind what they wanted to do. You know, I'll, I'll tell you this. And, and so here in the United States, we just came past college football bowl season, which for international audiences, that's a span of really a couple weeks where you see all of these, you know, great matchups of, of football teams that generally don't play each other. And each of these games tends to have a sponsor. 
I won't name the sponsors, but each of them generally had these sponsors rotate over the years. Um, but I always wait for about halftime because it's always someone from the sponsor that comes onto the field and almost in an awkward fashion is like, and my company's really happy to be sponsoring this great game. And I'm like, okay, that's the person that wrote the check. Yes. It's like, look, if I'm, if I'm spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on this, I'm going on the field with my friends and I'm going to be on TV. Look, that what I the reason why I bring that up, and, and this is one of the guide that well, that number in particular is one of the guiding numbers that that I remember with a lot of my work. I oftentimes get our audiences, you know, kind of shaking their heads and being like, God, see what you're saying is this is this is a futile pursuit, all this data, and we're only at six percent. You know, I say it because it provides a sense of realism and a sense of context. That when companies and analysts, small business owners sit there and they look at sometimes these large companies, including Google. There's this perception to say that everything that Google does is data-driven. That 100% of our decisions need to be made using data. And what I really go back to say is I say, no, really what we're looking at is all companies struggle with this problem. Mm. Data is unnatural. It's not the way that we usually make decisions. As you said, with this emotion, the irrational human, we're used to trusting our gut. And what I say is two things. One is, accept that this happens, that there's no company perfect. So if you get discouraged and you say data is difficult for you, or you're not using enough data in your business, this is what the data shows. Nobody is. Right. All companies are struggling with this. But what it also shows is that the bar for progress is low and attainable. It's not getting to 100% of your decisions. That's not what the aspiration is. The aspiration is to be better than the companies you're competing with. And if you accept that six out of every hundred of their decisions are going to be made using data based on this larger research, then you know that simply getting to seven or eight or 12 decisions, if you get to 12 decisions, you are now making twice as many decisions backed on data as your competitors. You will win in your market. Yes, that is great. And it's also showing that there's such an opportunity. And it's like so many other things, uh, topics that have been uh, covered on this show, where you don't have to be perfect at these things. You just have to be a little bit better than your competition, much like the idea of you and your friend are walking in the woods and a bear starts chasing you. You don't have to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun (laughs) your friend. That's exactly it. And that goes back, and this is why it ties full circle to starting simple, which is to say, if if your thought is... If your thought is, in order to get to 100 out of 100 decisions being made using data, that you need to use the latest in machine learning and hire thousands of engineers and collect loads of data, my argument is, no, just start simple and do something that allows you to make one or two more decisions in your day based on data. Because if you're able to do that, then you're ahead of your competition. You're ahead of the market. And now you can arguably make the claim that compared to everyone else, you are a more data-driven company. Mm, amen. Let me just ask two other quick questions before we wrap up. Uh, and again, we're just skimming the surface here, folks. There's quite a bit. There's a whole quite a bit about testing and the, you know, the, the, the approach to testing. But I wanted to ask you about something that was on page 172. I have to explain this. You say most executives don't understand the reality of testing. What's going on there? They just don't. Um, it's not necessarily so their what fault. what problem does that present? <laughs> they don't think to ask their marketing people, what it's, are you guys testing? I think they're afraid to are- test. Oh, boy. Uh, There's a compilation of things. Here's what you need to know about it. One is that most companies acknowledge the need to test. 
But what they look at is they look at oftentimes that testing is a way to do risk management as opposed to exploration. To say, instead of spending a whole bunch of money here, we're going to test. But that leads them to thinking about it more as a conservative measure. Case in point, I've had companies come to me and say, we will run any test you have as long as you're 90, 95% certain it's going to be successful. <laughs> so they're kind of checking That's off the That's all box, they're asking, like, we're, doing, we're doing testing, but, but we, we need to make sure it succeeds. And in fact, other companies, and this is predominantly the case, is that they get frustrated when tests fail in their mm. organization. And they say, look, and we've had some companies that I've spoken to where they say, look, this, we ran this test and we lost this money because the test was not successful. And I have to remind them the purpose of testing isn't to make money. The purpose of testing is to learn how your business, how your customers, how your markets respond. And the more ambitious the test, the more you have the opportunity to learn, but it carries more risk. You need that to drive your business forward. And that's often a misconception. That's to say, well, we're just going to run simple tests that save ourselves money. What those companies realize is that there's never a good time to run tests. If business is growing and booming, they say, well, we have everything dialed in. Why should we explore anything new? If the numbers are behind, they say, oh, no, we need all hands on deck. We can't waste any money. And they never get around to it. And so it becomes a principle that they know in their heart they should do, that they should explore and try new things, but they meet headfirst the realities to say, well, when? And that they usually punt it off to where it's not uncommon to see even large businesses only run three or four tests every couple of months. Mm. And so that's the first thing is just the reality is to where should testing and exploration, my argument to all of you will be that it is essential. It is a lifeblood. It is your research and development arm to say this is going to ensure the future success of your business, that you know more about how your customers respond. You collect that data before your competitors. You know more about what they want. The other part of it is that some companies just forget about how difficult it is to surface ideas within their organization. Now, I use testing as a way to kind of get the executive attention and to kind of prod people along. But what's really happening is that companies have data. They hire some really smart people who look at that data and say, I see something new here. I see an opportunity for our business. And there is no clear path for them to surface that to any decision maker where that matters. And so that insight, that data set goes unused. That value is never captured. And it's all because the company's saying, okay, I think our customers, instead of a blue product, want a red product. Well, that means, okay, well, we need to reprint the product or recolor the product. How do we do that? There's no path. So even though it could be worth millions of dollars, they have to yell and shout and say, I think we should do something new. And so really what we're talking about with experimentation is not the grittiness of running these tests, but to say, what do you have inside your business that allows people at any level, at any function, to say, I found an insight backed by data that could change the way that we approach our business and our customers. What are they supposed to do with that insight? Mm. And that's what I'm trying to challenge people to think about is, where does it happen in a lot of companies? Like that customer question, sit there and they say, well, what does happen? Mm -hmm. And then they realize they don't have a process. They don't have a technique. That's why they don't test. That's why their data is not being used. And then the light bulb goes off to say, it doesn't matter how much more data we collect if nobody has a path to, to change what we're doing with it. Mm -hmm. That's a great expression. You know, the purpose of testing is to learn. That's it. And that's how when I've used that term or I've encouraged others to use it, it seems uh, less 
I guess in another context, but like when we're talking to a client or, or, or other, other people are doing this, they'll say, well, let's test something to learn. You know, let's, let's test something out instead of having everything look like a new initiative that could possibly fail. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, because you, you mentioned consumer data, and I promise this will be the last thing uh, before we wrap up, is the, uh, there's a, a, an expression you have in the book that I, I'm going to be stealing and using <laughs> to by, the end by, of time. By all means. <laughs> you have this term, you only used it once on page 176, called false sense of perceived uniqueness. And just you know, as an agency guy, it, it was funny to me because for my 30-plus year career, every client always goes, well, you see, Douglas, we're different. <laughs> yep. And I think a lot of companies don't realize uh, how a lot of the problems they have are actually quite similar. And a lot of it goes back to some of the human nature issues. But everyone thinks they're, they're different. Now, maybe their companies are, are different, but the, the problems they solve for their customers aren't necessarily that. Now, if you don't have a lot of that customer data, you talk about how, okay, a false sense of perceived uniqueness actually prevents businesses from using existing published research that's already out there, which can be very helpful and possibly even free. I thought that was interesting. So explain what you mean about how that is actually a blind spot. And there's, from your perspective, is there, is there more data available to companies than they're willing to, to use? I'll, I'll tell you a story about that. Um, back when I was at finishing my master's at UCLA, um, last couple weeks in the program, I went to a lot of my professors, now former professors, and I just said, going out into marketing, what's the advice that you have for me? And three of them stood out. One of them was said, learn how to test because not enough companies did. So that's mm. why I started leaning into that area in my career. Another one said, always avoid the first page of Google results when you're looking for market research. I said, well, that's kind of odd. Oh, and they said, interesting. because everybody uses that. They say, well, how, how big is the market expected to be for iPhone devices in this state next year? And then the number pops up on the first result and say, ah, I found it. And they move on. <laughs> and they say, that first page is what everyone in the market is using because that's what everyone is compelled to do. Interesting. They say, go further to look for differing points of view. In fact, when you look at how to calculate customer lifetime value on Google, the first page of search results are completely wrong. Um, so, are you going to so get in trouble that, for saying that? Take, no, it's it's true. I reported it to our team. I was like, "Are you kidding me? This is this is there's there's one there's one example. It's a beautiful infographic that's like we don't know how to calculate it. So here's three different techniques and just average them all together. Like what? How does and we have three wrong answers? What are we going to do? Average them. It's not a better answer. The third piece of advice was to go through academic research. And I thought, I was like, well, that's kind of strange. First of all, I never read any up until that point. So I said, well, why is this so important? And they said. The thing to realize is that there's thousands of academics around the world that are studying the problems that are relevant to your business. But the way they write the solutions to the problems are not for people like you and me. They're not meant for people that are trying to apply it. We think it's very ivory tower. We think it's very theoretical. And because of that, these great insights that are proven to a rigor that even on our own tests, even things that I'm running today cannot replicate. It would take me years to do. But they're ignored. And so they sit there idle where even though they're solving company problems, even though the work has already been done and the, the quality is extraordinary, it sits on the shelf for about five or six or seven years until somebody adds it to their book and explains to people what it actually meant. That's why in my book, you're going to see so many references to academic research that you probably didn't hear of was because I took that opportunity to say, here were the papers that I read that you probably haven't seen 
that I want to simplify to just say, do this. And you get that aha moment where the light bulb goes off again and you say, oh, that's what all this research, 60 pages of research found and proved this out. Yes, go do it. And, and so that's the value of it. I mean, this, the, this phrase, standing on the shoulders of giants is not trying to reinvent this work for yourself, but to say, this has already been done. And this is a fantastic starting point. Knowing, and, and this is a sad thing, but I'll, I'll point this out. If somebody publishes something about Google paid search, which has been the case, I would still struggle to find people in my immediate world of colleagues that has seen that paper, even though it's about our product and our work. That's how big the disconnect is. And so if you're able to spend a little bit of time in this academic research, getting past all the math, just really paying attention to the abstracts and the discussions, it gives you insights and knowledge very much like that second page of search results that other people in your industry likely haven't seen. And it just comes on you to have that focus and to be able to look past and to say, this may have been done for a slightly different vertical, mm -hmm. or it may have been done a year or two ago, but it's still applicable to me. Yes, yes. Be wary of that false sense of perceived uniqueness. And those are, as the podcasters say, those are three serious value bombs you just dropped on the audience. Learn to test, go past the first page of Google, and you heard it from somebody who works there, folks, okay? And look at the academic research. So, Neil Hoyne, if readers took only one thing away from Converted, what would you hope it would be? If there was only one thing I'd say, it's just an understanding of the importance of measuring your customer relationships and the accessibility of the ideas to you today. It's not a complicated data science, machine learning, five-year, million-dollar project. It's practical things you can do today to better understand your customers and better serve your customers, not only from what they're used to experiencing from you today, but what they're used to experiencing from their competitors who are only focused on individual transactions. Mm, excellent. Well, what, what is one thing a listener could do today? Just something to get them started, get them committed <laughs> to, to take action from one of the many ideas <laughs> can, we've talked about. Uh, can, can, I, can I give two or is that cheating? I, I want to. No, be, I you'll be, be over-delivering. I'll, I'll, I'll do the first one, as I'd say. Is, is test something new. And my recommendation would be towards asking your customers a question to change that checkout page, to change that survey that you're sending out, to learn something new about your customers that you previously didn't have. That's the most immediate thing. Just start asking them questions about what they think about your business or how they're approaching the market, especially now during these, these bizarre pandemic times. Those insights are incredible. Something could it be like something like as simple as saying, what's one thing that we could have done perhaps a little better? It could be, well, in fact, something that I mentioned in the book, one of my favorite questions to ask people in surveys is not something we could have done better, but what's something that you loved that we did? Now, oh. it's not simply because I want the praise. Yeah, sure. Oh, you are so great. Here's what the research, that academic research shows. Asking people that question, getting them to think about the positives makes those ideas real in their head. If I ask you what I could have done better, what do you do? You sit there and you think, hmm. I don't know. Well, Neil, you could have picked up the phone faster. I, I really wish if you didn't use emojis in your email, <laughs> something. But if I say, what did you like? You start thinking about it. Now, what are the results? What do people see? When people took a survey and they started off with that question, what's something you loved about our business, about your product? In a retail setting, they found that the lifetime value of those customers that simply received that question went up about 7%. They found B2B customers who were in a trial product, you know, those 30-day trial, 60-day uh -huh. trial. Halfway through their trial, they received that question. What do you like about your trial so far? 
and they found more than a 30% improvement with customers that were asked to focus on the positive that went on to then actually subscribe as a paying customer later on than people that didn't. And so those types of questions, not only do we get to learn what are the things that are really resonating with our customers, we also can tap into that irrational side to make our strengths more real to them and to almost nudge their purchasing behaviors in a better direction. You know, that brings to mind the notion of your customers aren't buying what you think they are buying. You find out what's really turning them on, what they really like. They're like, they like that? I thought everybody did that. Or, you know, it's just something that there's, there's usually that, a disconnect between the, the, either the problem solved or why they really, the emotional reason why they're buying from you rather than the more functional reason that you might think. That, that's exactly it. And so th- that question is just what I'd say, do immediately. There's nothing to change a survey to ask that question is trivial. It should be nothing more than a couple hours of your time, probably less. If I give you something long-term, I'd say, Go down that path, and the book is going to help facilitate it. It's just going to be an online tool that makes it easier. But understand the value of the relationships and the customers you have. Even if you're not committed to acting on it, even if you just are curious to say, do people behave in different ways? Maybe you're skeptical. Once you see that data, and again, it comes out in a spreadsheet, and you see that some customers are just prone to spend more and others less, that curiosity fuels an entire organization. Mm. Or even if you, you don't want to become an evangelist and wander through your company and say, look, let's change all of our metrics and do this customer relationship <laughs> thing. If you make that metric available, I am consistently surprised as to how many people start asking the questions themselves. So just, oh, hey, we ran this marketing campaign. We brought in 100,000 customers. Just wanted to let you know 99% of them aren't going to come back. What? Why? Oh, and, and by the way, did you know that this campaign or this channel, these customers are going to come back and spend four times as much over their lifetime as customers that we normally, really, how do we get more of those people? <laughs> Simply by having that data point, by showing people that these are great relationships that we should pay attention to, you can't ignore it anymore. You become curious. You start asking and provoking the questions. You want to join everybody else on that journey. And so I say is don't craft this into a large strategy to say 2022, 2023 is a year that our company changes. It digitally transforms, God help <laughs> right. us. But this month is just where we're going to create a simple metric that says, what are these relationships like with our customers? Mm. Let's just understand that as a business and know we can do it. Oh, the impact that could have on uh, the business of anyone listening is, is, is almost immeasurable. So Neil, Looking back, what books have most inspired your work and career? You know, the, the books that we mentioned early on, um, Pete Fader, The Customer Centricity, Customer Centricity Playbook, this blue book of his is phenomenal um, because it really summarizes everything. And, and Pete is, is an undeniable leader in this space, if not the mm-hmm. leader. And it really gets you caught up to say, these were all the rules and lessons that were learned in this space. Those are two books that I always have on my desk that I love. Uh, other books that I keep, if you're just curious about it, uh, uh, required reading for everybody on my team is a book, How to Lie uh, with Statistics. <laughs> I haven't heard of it, but I love the name, How to Lie with Statistics, which of course, it brings to mind the, the I think it was the Mark Twain quote of there's three kinds of liars, liars, damned liars, and statisticians. And I'm not, to be clear, I'm not encouraging people to, to, to lie with statistics, but what I love about some of these types of books, and there's also another book I have, The Cartoon Guides to Statistics, is that it makes these concepts accessible where people know what to look out for. Oh. So as you're becoming a more data-driven organization and somebody brings things up, 
you at least know the guide rails to say, look, I don't need to know the entire field. I just need to know how things can be manipulated and how things could change. What are the, the gotcha moments that I need to pay attention to? The last book, and this is actually a recommendation. I went to a couple business school professors again, just asked them, what's the book you have on your shelf? Is a book by, by Jim Novo called Drilling Down. It's been out of print for a couple of years, but Jim has a website that also hasn't been updated, it looks like, in a couple of years, where he has a couple chapters of his book for free. I'll be honest, it's a hard read. Uh, it, it, it can be at times, uh, and I, I could apologize to Jim for this, it is a great cure for insomnia. If you cannot sleep, this is a book. But what's surprising about normally it is that, people with insomnia just listen to the marketing book podcast. Apparently, that's where most of my audience is. <laughs> You're looking at me like everyone's saying, be like, and this is the point, they fell asleep. It was 20 minutes ago. <laughs> We start, start doing, I hope my that, that's not the case with this interview, obviously. I, so. If you're still listening now, you're still awake. Uh, yes, so it's been yes. interesting. The, the reason why I, I love the book, apart from its therapeutic value, is that it shows how simple data can be applied. Now, it goes on a little bit of a different scope. Again, it's an older book. But what I like about it is anything that separates us from, look, nobody snuggles up with data books at night because they're complicated. They require us to think and to interpret how this is used for our business. With books like the Customer Centricity Playbook, like Drilling Down, like uh, ideally the title I've written here, Converted, the goal is to make it more of a conversation. So you're like, you're sitting down with your favorite drink, a, a glass of wine, a pint of beer, and you're just learning and you immediately can start thinking up these ideas of how it applies to your business. Those are the books that I resonate with. They're few and far between, but once I have them, they earn almost a permanent spot, not on my bookshelf, but on my desk where I see them every day, because not only are they instantly applicable, as I hope this guidebook will be, but because we want to inspire ourselves to say, this is how we can simplify and share these ideas with others. That we have examples of people that are great storytellers that have been able to take technical concepts and simplify them down to where we can see the value. And we have to challenge ourselves to tell our own stories in that same way. Hmm. So I'm looking at the book, Drilling Down, Turning Customer Data into Profits with a Spreadsheet on the U.S. Uh, Amazon site. And it's there. It's just expensive. It's like $70, yeah, this, $70 or $100. Uh, but it, it, So if somebody really wants it, they can maybe get it. And then everybody else on the team can uh, can read it. But that's uh, very interesting. And the others, too, uh, How to Lie with Statistics and the Cartoon Guide to Statistics. Well, terrific. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you've heard of or that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? You know, where I'm at right now, honestly, is, and this is just where, where my head's at, there's uh, some books that I, I had on my Kindle wish list are, have been postponed. Uh, a lot of my time, if you're looking at my reading list, is on academic research. Hmm. And the reason is, uh, is, is very straightforward. I am incredibly curious right now about what happens with customers acquired during the pandemic. Mm. And it's, it's a bit of a story. This did not get integrated into the book, but what happened was in March of 2020, customers that were acquired from businesses started behaving radically different than customers that were acquired previously. They started signing up and buying products and services in different ways, asking for different things. And so there's a lot of research going on right now to figure out well, what happens to these people as markets start to recover? Can you keep those relationships going? Mm. And I worry that the book publishing cycle is going to be a couple years out. Well, we're going to be talking about this in a decade. So that's where a lot of my focus is now, just on those types of questions and anybody that's adding to that collective voice, that collective narrative. Interesting. Well, could maybe that could be Neil Hoyne's second book. Not to add things to your plate there. <laughs> yeah. I, the book projects are tough. Oh, uh, I, I know. <laughs> 
You know, there was an author on the show uh, years ago. His name is Tom Martin, and he wrote The Invisible Sale. And uh, after I interviewed him, gosh, back in 2015, I asked him about you know, any of their upcoming books, and he said uh, that he was at a cocktail party with his wife, and someone asked his wife, uh, you know, if, if Tom was going to be writing any more books. And, you know, he could hear this, but he wasn't part of the conversation. His wife said, I don't know. Ask his next wife. Oh. <laughs> They're still happily married, obviously. But uh, <laughs> it's just, I thought it was a great story about the toll that it takes for these uh, people who write these books that I that admire so much. So that's an interesting area of uh, research. And that actually is. Uh, making me want to go learn uh, more about that. So as I mentioned earlier, at marketingbookpodcast.com on this episode's website page, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including uh, all the books that you've mentioned, uh, your site, uh, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account, um, and some of those other interviews that we talked about. And to the listeners, if you would do me a big favor... I'm not asking you for a five-star iTunes review, although if you do, I might, uh, you know, I'll send you a little thank you in the mail. I'll send you some stickers and bookmarks, but I, and I'm not asking to send me a bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon, although some listeners have done that. I, you know, I'm not asking to send a bottle of wine to, to Neil. What I really want you to do is reach out to Neil either through LinkedIn or Twitter or go to his website, which is going to be on this page, and let him know that you listened to this and that you uh, found it interesting or that you at least pity him for having to you know, put up with these really stupid jokes from the host. But the guests on the Marketing Book Podcast just love hearing from the listeners. And just this week, Joanna from Warsaw, Warsaw, Poland, not Warsaw, Virginia, where Marcus Sheridan lives, uh, she said, hey, I reached out to this uh, author and told him how much I enjoyed it and everything. And I sent her a thank you in the mail, you know, some laptop stickers and, and uh, bookmarks, that sort of thing. But please do that for Neil. It's his first book, and I think he'd really uh, enjoy hearing from you. And he seems like a really, really nice guy. If you have a question, I bet he'll answer it. So anyway, Absolutely. if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast or your favorite podcast app like iTunes or Spotify, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The book is converted the Data-Driven Way to Win Customers' Hearts. The author is Neil Hoyne. Neil, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 